Thank you, Kim, and good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be back with y'all this spring, especially in this series uh, that Jared reminded you of a few moments ago, uh, The Power of the Cross. Um, this morning, looking at that passage that Kim just read for us, uh, looking at two things. Uh, the first, our enemy dominates and our king conquers. Uh, I want to pray for us before we get into this anymore. Father, this morning through your word, through the ways you apply your word in our hearts and our minds, I pray that you would insist on who you are. I pray that you would make us see your beloved Jesus and make us see you as you are. Pray that your insistence of who you are would overcome and eclipse our suspicions of who you might be. We long to have your eyes. And this is where you correct our vision. This is where you heal us. This is where you encourage us. And so that's our request to you as you do this with your sons and daughters across the globe in heaven and on earth this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our King, our Conqueror. Amen. Well, again, my name is Ben. If I haven't met you, um, I'm thankful to get to be a part of your church these mornings when uh, we get to come and worship together and open the Bible together. Jared mentioned this, ironically, uh, a few moments ago when he opened the service. He was talking about these recent elections that we've been through. And before this most recent one, back in 2016, when it was... Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. That election, um, historians already say, was different, was distinct from previous elections. In a lot of ways, maybe it was us beginning to put our hopes more and more in politics, but it was also distinct uh, and different because of how polarized it was and divisive, how it divided the country. And it wasn't just the normal election where it's like, we might disagree or you see things differently than I see things, but it was you're the enemy. You're what's wrong with this country. You're a danger to the country. That's how we tended to see people uh, that saw things differently uh, than us in that election. Now, a, a few months before the election happened, you might have remembered, news started to break. Little stories here and there that there might be something more going on than meets the eye. It might, there might be something more than just friends sharing Facebook messages or Instagram stories or sharing articles on social media that's driving all of this polarization. And the early reports were that our enemy might not just be our neighbors, but those reports said our enemy is Russia. Remember? They said at, at, in those early reports that uh, they had found Russian military troll farms, which are basically these giant rooms filled with people creating fake social media accounts, Facebook accounts, Instagram accounts. And through those accounts, we're introducing disinformation and hyperpolarized uh, material, conspiracy theories, propaganda, things that were specifically designed to turn people on each other to exploit divisions that already existed. And their attack seemed to work flawlessly. If their intention was to exploit those divisions and to turn people against each other and for fellow Americans to look at each other and say, 
you're a danger. You're what's wrong with this place. Um, you must be defeated. Their attack worked flawlessly. Since then, there's been a bunch of investigations launched for the simple reason that you can't defeat your enemy if you don't know who your enemy is. And you certainly can't ha have success in that battle if you don't understand the scope or the nature of your enemy's activities. That holds true in all of life. There's no battle you can win and there's no enemy that you can defeat if you don't know who the enemy is, right? We will inherently be fighting the wrong battle, barking up the wrong tree, asking the wrong questions, debating the wrong points, shooting in the wrong direction. You have to know your enemy to defeat your enemy. But even as I say that very line, I, I remember how American I'm thinking right now. Because we Americans often think if there's an enemy out there, we can defeat it. We've just got to understand it. If there's a virus, we can get a vaccine. If there's another military power rising up, we've got the greatest military. We can overcome it. If there's a problem, we've got great universities. We can solve it. But then I started thinking about, for example, Yemeni families who last year and now went through this devastating confluence of famine, a 10-year-long civil war, bombed out homes, and COVID with no medical care. Then you start thinking about Mexican families, villages where kids don't ever play outside, families don't ever take walks because cartels own the town and bullets fly. West Virginians, who last year might have buried more family members from overdose than COVID. Some here this morning or watching who feel captive or oppressed, addicted to your own habits, our own addictions, people who feel captive in our own strained marriages, people who don't know a single thing to do with a wayward child, people who've been trying to fix a problem for a decade or two and it hasn't relented. And the Yemenis and the Mexicans and the West Virginians and we, if you're in that situation, have greater clarity about what kind of enemy you face and what kind of conqueror you need. Not a, little, not a mere mortal, not a professor, not a doctor, not a scientist, but someone supernatural, someone divine, someone bigger than the enemies we face, these intractable foes who don't go away just because we fire at them. You have greater clarity of your captivity. You have much greater clarity of the conqueror that you have to have if there's a hope of liberty, meaningful freedom in this life. Maybe your favorite words, if you're in that condition or if that resonates with you, maybe your favorite words is Jesus' credo. You know, that, that mission statement that he gave us or really that the Father gave him in Luke 4, that, sun, that Sabbath in Nazareth when he stood up at church and read the passage from Luke 4. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has, anointed, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and to set free the oppressed. 
And maybe you, like those people, realize I don't just need a preacher to proclaim emancipation, but I need someone who will fight the bloody war to secure emancipation. Presidents can declare you emancipated, but until the oppressor is decisively defeated, you're still in captivity. And we know we need one not who preaches freedom, but who secures freedom. It's significant that right after Jesus said those words in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to battle with the devil for 40 days and nights. And the next time that those two great foes, a true king and a competitor king, do battle in a climactic way is what Kim just read from John 19. Our king dying on his cross. To take comfort in the conquering power of the cross, to begin living like you and I are actually free in this life, in this life, in these years, we have to rightly apprehend what kind of enemy Jesus was fighting on that cross. And you have to see it as your enemy, not just his. The big enemy behind all the little enemies that you and I face. Whatever little enemies, the restlessness that's inside of you and distracts you from God, the boredom that makes you want to check out from all of this kind of stuff we talk about, um, illness, pain, relational conflict, broken friendships, broken marriages. Behind all of the little enemies, the dark stuff, the bad stuff, the stuff that we should say is evil. Do you see Jesus fighting that and where they came from in this battle on the cross? To the degree that you and I are able to see him fighting our little enemies because he was fighting our big enemy, you will be able to take more and more comfort, more and more power, more and more confidence from his battle on the cross. So that's really my question to us this morning is, do you know the enemy that you're up against? And is he and is it so big that none but Jesus will do? None but Jesus will do to topple that enemy. We're all prone to underestimate our enemy. That much is obvious, right? Peter, just before this passage, you know the famous account when Peter brings a knife to a gun battle. When Peter still fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the enemy that his king was fighting. And so Peter legitimately believes that a sword swung against the head of a soldier would be a successful tactic against that kind of enemy. Well, if that's your enemy, that is successful, potentially. But Jesus knew, and the reason he said, Peter, put your sword away, is Jesus knew what Peter needed was a crucified king warring cosmic warfare. Not a king who could swing a bigger sword. So in this passage, and the pieces that weren't included in the passage but are there, if you have your Bible opened uh, to John 19, do you see behind Pilate's cowardice or Peter's denial or Judas's change of heart or the chief priest's rage or the mob's betrayal or the crowd's chants? Do you see behind all of those little enemies Satan? And again, behind your own unbelief, 
your own struggles, your own temptations, your own disinterest, your own relapse, your own fears, do you see Satan, our great enemy, the accuser, the murderer, the liar, the lover of death, the minister of chaos. If you do, you're prepared and you're eager for a king like Jesus who on his cross, which he says, John says it was his cross, you're prepared to see him conquering our foe. So our enemy is not just great, and our enemy doesn't just dominate, and that's the way the New Testament always describes our enemy, by the way, a, a, one who exercises dominion, one who holds people in oppression, one who blinds, one who kills. Our king conquers, our king delivers, and on this cross of all weird places, now, the ironic question is, did you see Jesus conquering? When you think about this Lent, when, when week after week you're confronted with this Jesus giving his life away on this cross in this gruesome way, do you have eyes to see a successful, decisive war being won? I wouldn't blame you if you missed it, right? We shouldn't blame each other if, if you failed to see a king winning a battle because this king was easy to miss. By the time that we encounter him in this particular day, his skin has already been ruthlessly ripped from his back. His face is already disfigured. His bone structure is disfigured. It's caked in blood from days of being beaten from the crown that was on his head. And so it'd be easy to miss God in this moment because God happened to look like a homeless drunk that had been in a terrible fight the night before, curled up on the street. Hard to see your king winning when that's what he looks like. But he was a king nevertheless, and John is so eager. Remember, this is John 60, probably 60 years after the fact. John is so proud of his king. John's heart is drowned with love for this Jesus when he thinks back with 60 years of refinement, 60 years of processing. He thinks back to this day that he was there to see. He thinks back and he's proud and he doesn't want you to miss a single trapping of royalty. And this is why every little detail John takes note of 60 years later. He was dressed like a king. This was the mock coronation day. This is what Romans did to pretender kings to say, oh, a king? Look at your king. Look at him reign over you. And so the soldiers make a crown of thorns that shoots pain into his head and sends whatever blood was left in his body out through his head and all the way down him. And they dressed him in robes of royalty. And they gave him a stick that some punk teenage Roman soldier found nearby as his little cute scepter. And they made him hold it. And as John thinks back, he says, there's my king. There's your king. See him fight. See him reign. See him rule. See him battle. King of the Jews, King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That phrase is recorded ten times, ten times 
in a book where John is not redundant. This is John who said, if all the things Jesus said and done were recorded, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. John is not one who's liberal with words. Ten times John says, Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's not just King of the Jews. This is the, the, the brilliant irony of that day, which is uh, Pilate didn't like the Jews and the Jews didn't like Pilate. And Pilate didn't want to do this to some extent. Three or four times, Pilate comes and says, really? What about option B? What about plan C? What about plan D? I find nothing wrong in this man. What about this prisoner? Three or four times, Pilate tries to wash his hands of this Friday afternoon inconvenience when he just wants to get home. But the Jews wouldn't allow it. The chief priests wouldn't allow it. And so they get into this little squibble about the sign that Pilate had made, which was always put above crucified people, the crime that they had committed. And Pilate had just flippantly told someone or maybe thoughtlessly said, right on there, uh, I mean, his crime is blasphemy. That's what they say it is. So right up there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in every language of the known world at that time, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. He's an international savior. Here is God announcing to the world, Jews, this isn't just your king. Greeks, this is your king. Romans, here's the true Caesar. Here's how he fights for his people. Here's his humility. Here's how he lays down his life instead of demanding that all of his subjects lay down their life for him. And he's saying to everyone else, look, Here's your king. It's hard for us to think about kings because uh, we've, we've been damaged by these um, uh, powerless, impotent kings and queens the past hundred years. We have Netflix dramas about them. We watch these things We're like Queen Elizabeth. Isn't it cool to see the inner trappings of the royal family? But all they do is cut ribbons and start charities. But a king in Jesus' day is what this... Uh, this weird string of adjectives, this Orthodox Jewish rapper from Brooklyn, Modest Yahoo, wrote as he has a song about what a king of Israel was like. The king was the people. All the people were part of the king. He wasn't just a politician. He was guardian, a battle-tested general, a warrior who would die for his people. He was a singer, a writer, a poet, a philosopher, a mascot for his people. He was a help in times of trouble, a refuge a tower of strength in the face of the enemy, a rescuer. And Jesus is this warrior king who in this moment, in this battle, on this cross, is liberating his people. Why is your king in such a place as this? Why is God in such a literally God-forsaken place, a God-cursed place as a cross? Why naked? Why publicly ridiculed? Why shamed? Why abandoned? Because if what Modest Yahoo said is correct, your king was in that place because that's where his people were. That's where his people are. And if a king who's a warrior and a fighter is going to rescue his people, he has to go to where his people are to liberate them from that. Why was Jesus on a cross? It's because it's where you belonged. 
It's where I belonged. That story is not surprising. Me publicly shamed for my sins? You would even shame me if you knew all of my sins. You would be prone to go home and after lunch say, can you believe that? That guy did this? That guy struggled with that? We would be prone to wag our tongues. Jesus was in that place because we are or were in that place. You might have thought it a throwaway line. I certainly did until recently, verse 14. John randomly mentions, Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which meant noon. And then he goes back to the story. And you're like, why is John keeping track of the clock for us? Why a notation of the specific day of the year that this is all going down? Um, I got to go to Israel about a year and a half ago. Amazing. And we were at uh, the hill of the skull or Golgotha. And it's literally uh, 50 yards from the city wall. Right by what at the day would have been a four-lane highway. Super crowded. And the Romans crucified people there for the same reason. Everybody will see it. So Jesus is crucified there. And within probably 500 yards of where he was crucified at that very moment, a priest, a Levite, was slitting the throat of an unblemished, innocent lamb, a lamb of Passover that was being prepared for sacrifice to, as a stand-in for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle that blood on the horns of the altar and he would declare what, we, what was declared over you earlier, an assurance of pardon. And it was the first time that little lamb that pointed to the bigger lamb, while the bigger lamb were both being sacrificed in the very same moment to cleanse their people. And the switch that happens is the chants that were hurled at God, crucify him, crucify him. And the, and the comment that was put over Jesus by Pilate, I find no basis. I find no basis for a charge against him. Those verdicts are swapped in this moment. So that the verdict that now comes to the people that Jesus was giving his life for, which are the people who put their faith in Jesus, that he is the king he says he is, and that he is able to fight for me like he says he's able to fight for me. That he died for his people to switch those verdicts. That now, the verdict that most rightly fits you is, I find no basis for a charge against you. Which means there's been an examination, which means there's been an accounting. And God finds no basis for a charge against you. You're innocent. And the charge, or the verdict that rightly fit us prior, crucify him, crucify him, falls on Jesus. Paul, probably before John wrote his gospel, Paul had already begun to wrestle with what's the implications of this switch, this moment on the cross, this king in this moment conquering our big enemy and thereby all of our little enemies. Paul says in Colossians 1 that God has delivered us from the domain or the dominion the land where we were subjects in darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You can look up just above the sermon passage in Colossians 2 where he says, in this moment, Jesus was making a mockery 
of your tyrant, of your oppressor, of the one who stands behind all of your little enemies. What should you and I do in the midst of this? What difference does this make for the second week of March? Um, I'll close with this and three or four little tweets of application. Uh, when I lived out in New Mexico, I stumbled upon in the little town square of, of our city uh, this historical marker that said, six months after Appomattox, a battle, the last battle of the Civil War was fought here, which blew my mind because it's half a continent away. I didn't know New Mexico or whatever that was at the time, Mexico. I didn't know they were involved in the Civil War. And I found it sad that people were still giving their lives. Bullets were still flying half a year after the Confederacy admitted defeat and handed over their swords. We live in a moment where victory has been decisively won on your behalf, but bullets still fly, pain still happens, battles still rage. But here's the thing, the supply line is broken and no more bullets are coming into your enemy's guns. Every shot they take is one less. And you're on the winning side. And you're bulletproof. So what does that mean for this week? We can take courage that we are battling in our thoughts, in our intrusive thoughts, in our temptations, in our persistent sufferings, that we are waging war against an already defeated enemy. It means that we can talk about our sins and our struggles with our friends because they have already been publicly exposed in time and in space. People have already laughed at what you're afraid they're going to laugh at. People have already judged Jesus naked on the cross, bearing our shame. It means we can stop letting our minds or our consciences hurl shouts of crucify her at you or crucify him. And it means we can fight to apply the verdict. There is no basis for a charge against me. There is no basis for a charge against me. And it means we can repent of looking at worldly powers, structures, leaders, technologies to conquer the root and the source of all of our little enemies. Because we know a king who has fought and defeated our big enemy. And if you don't know this Jesus, this is the first you've heard of this king. He is a king who has not come for a tribe, but for everybody. And he's even translated his invitation into your language. It's a genuine invitation to come to him, to stop trying to fight your battles, but to let him conquer your enemies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need a king like this. We need a deliverer like this, and we have one. And so if we're in you, let us go home with peace, comfort, celebration, and victory. Let lunch be jubilant because of this news. And if anyone here is here that does not know you, exercise your dominion and pluck them out of the kingdom of darkness even now and transfer them into your kingdom once for all, forever. We pray it in your name. Amen.